Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. And I just want everybody to know that I'm committed to coming physically into the house of each and every listener for racial dialogues and maybe like a beer. <laughs> Let me try again. This is John Bewin and Chenjerai Kumanika of the podcast Seen on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. <laughs> all right, all right. <clears throat> Take three. <sighs> Seriously, though, these are rough times. This is the second episode we're featuring based on their documentary series, The Land That Never Has Been Yet. We asked, hasn't American democracy always been in crisis? And I think our series has shown the answer is yes. John Bewin is a journalist and documentarian. Chenjerai Kumanika is an author, a journalist, and teaches in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers University. Oh, I thought these people were like part of the club, right? Poor white men. <laughs> but it turns out they didn't bring anything to the table that the ruling class wanted at that point. In this documentary series, they revisit American history, unraveling the myths of America's democratic origins. In the last episode, Bewin examined the American Revolution and how, unusual among its kind, it was a revolt of the elites. A lot of revolutions down through history have been class-based, bottom-up affairs. The American Revolution was really not that. This episode picks up in the new United States of America, where all that talk of freedom and the people didn't seem to apply to the tens of thousands of slaves. This is part two of The Land That Never Has Been Yet. Last episode, we looked at the making of the U.S. Constitution, but we didn't get into the debates over slavery that summer in Philadelphia. The framers managed to write the document without using the word, But behind those closed doors, slavery was almost a constant subtext. And as revealed in James Madison's notes from the convention, slavery was often openly on the table. In fact, everybody knew going in that the slave states would never sign a constitution that didn't keep them in the slavery business, and the document very much did. And yet, historians say a lot of people at the time, even some slaveholders, thought slavery would fade away, say within a few decades. Several men voiced that opinion at the convention. Slavery and time will not be a speck in our country. That prediction by Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut could not have been more wrong. The slaveholding delegate from South Carolina, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, was more prescient. He basically said to his fellow framers, gentlemen, let's get real. Far from letting it fade away, 
we should have more slavery. That, as he put it, would be in the interest of the whole union. The more slaves, the more produce to employ the carrying trade. The more consumption also. And the more of this, the more of revenue for the common treasury. But even Pinckney, in his greediest dreams, could not have imagined what was really going to happen with America's slave-based economy in the coming decades. Um, so, do you want to talk about pre-industrial life at all? Well, I'll we... tell you what, yeah, let's... Um... Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Today it's a suburb, just a few miles up the Seekonk River from Providence. Pawtuck, I guess, is a Native American. Uh, Narragansett word, which means place where the water falls. So we have falling water. He's Robin Alario is an interpreter with the Slater Mill Historic Site in Pawtucket. Before Samuel Slater showed up in 1790 to bring this mill to life, Pawtucket was another pre-industrial New England town. We had um, a shipbuilding industry, we had ironworks industry, and we had a rum brewing economy. Uh, everyone else was pretty much a farmer. But Slater did arrive. And because he did, Pawtucket can call itself... The birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. Well, the Industrial Revolution in the U.S. Because this is the first successful water-powered cotton spinning mill here in the United States. But of course, we can't talk about a cotton mill without the cotton. No, we can't. Much more on the cotton and the people who produced it in a minute. But we also can't talk about the transformation of the cotton economy without mentioning that other big invention, one that more of us did hear about in school. I can demonstrate this. The cotton gin, which mechanized the process of pulling seeds out of cotton bowls. Before the machine, that was a slow, painstaking job that enslaved people did by hand on southern plantations. The gin dramatically multiplied the amount of raw cotton that slave labor camps could produce. Eli Whitney patented the first cotton gin in 1793. That same year he filed his patent was the same year this mill opened for business. Samuel Slater became very successful with that cotton mill, and everybody realized this was the new big thing. So they wanted their own cotton mills. This whole park was filled with cotton mills. Cotton mills sprouted across New England including dozens in Massachusetts alone. And then they needed the more cotton gins because that just was so easy to meet all that demand. But that meant they needed more slaves to work the cotton gins on the cotton plantations. And so our northern mills helped perpetuate slavery and make it last until the end of the Civil War. No one saw this coming just a few years before when people were predicting the demise of slavery in the U.S., this technological revolution in cotton processing. It uncorked the economic potential of an industry and of this new nation. Slavery, especially cotton slavery, and the expansion of cotton slavery drove that sort of post-colonial economy from being something of a backwater to being one of the most, and by the end of the 19th century, the absolutely most important economy. And slavery in the U.S. South is central to all of that. Edward Baptist, professor of history at Cornell and author of the book The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. 
In that book, Baptist tells the story of the decades-long rush to make more and more money by producing more cotton. Suddenly, the hunger to make cotton money creates a powerful push to expand Southwest into what would become Alabama, then Mississippi, and eventually on to Texas. Remind us of the steps that are needed. First of all, you got to take the land. Yep. First of all, you have to take the land. and That meant, for one thing, jostling and making deals with European empires that still held claims to the land, Spain and France, and... And above all, you have the native peoples themselves. The Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, and Seminole peoples living on their lands across what is now the southeastern United States. The U.S. gradually defeats and pushes out all of them in a series of wars and uh, forced treaties, let's say. Each episode in the process of removing indigenous people played out in its own way over several decades. But Baptist says there was a repeating pattern. The tribes would sign a treaty with the state or federal government agreeing to a boundary. The tribe would say, we'll give up the land on that side of the line so long as you allow no white settlement over here on our side. Deal, the state or federal government would say. But then... White settlers move into the native land uh, despite the boundary that's there. Conflicts occur. State militia and local forces will first uh, fight against the native people, but also the politicians, the white politicians from those states and territories will put pressure on the national government to intervene, which in all but a few cases, the national government was eager to do. The one exception is uh, John Quincy Adams in the, uh, the 1820s, who actually believes that the federal government should honor its treaties uh, and should force Georgia to honor its treaties with the Cherokee and the Creek and other groups. Uh, and this is a big part of why he's not reelected uh, in 1828. Adams, the only president in early U.S. history who argues strongly for honoring treaties with Native tribes, loses the presidency to Andrew Jackson, a man Native Americans would call Indian killer. More on Jackson later. What happens next in the early decades of the 19th century had never happened anywhere else in the world, says Baptist. You have the transformation of a subcontinental-sized area from woods and subsistence production by native peoples into a massive commercial agricultural complex. That transformation requires not just land, but labor, too. Uh, I think this was a new word to me, I confess, um, the word coffle. Yeah, coffle is a term used to describe a a chained group of enslaved people who are being marched from where they've been bought to where they're going to be sold or resold. Ed describes a scene repeated thousands of times from the beginning of the 1800s up to the Civil War. Scenes from America's domestic slave trade, people sold in the older mid-Atlantic slave states to traders and speculators transporting those black people to the new cotton states. They would be moved in, in groups of 30, 50, in some cases as many as 200 at a time, guarded by a few whites on horseback. They'd be handcuffed together in pairs at, at the wrist, uh, and there'd also typically be one long chain 
that uh, passed through the rings on uh, iron collar that everybody was wearing. An iron collar around the neck. Around the neck, yeah, yeah. These journeys would typically take weeks. The enslaved people locked in the coffle the entire time, day and night. People would be marched as, as far as from uh, Virginia to uh, New Orleans or, or Natchez. Ed says enslavers and traders moved about a million people in this way to those deep south slave markets over decades. By the 1850s, enslaved people have cut down vast forest lands and two million are toiling in the fields across now eight cotton states, from South Carolina, Tennessee, and Florida to Louisiana and Texas. By this time, through the Louisiana Purchase and the Mexican-American War, the U.S. has conquered and claimed much more land all the way to California. And American cotton is clothing much of the world. Those states by the 1850s are producing something like 88 to 95 percent, depends on the year, of the cotton that is sold in Liverpool, which is the world's biggest cotton market. Wow. And cotton was the most important, most widely traded commodity in the world at that time, says Baptist. As central to the global economy as oil is today. So it's almost as if those states are, to draw the oil uh, metaphor out a little further, those states are the equivalent of Saudi Arabia plus Venezuela plus Nigeria plus Kuwait plus Iraq plus Iran uh, plus the UAE and, and Russia, <laughs> all within one larger political entity, the United States. As a category of property, enslaved black people were the second most valuable capital asset in the United States second only to the land itself. They made up one-fifth of the nation's total wealth in 1850. For three generations, from independence to the Civil War, if you watch what powerful Americans did, rather than listening to the nation's most noble stated ideals, it seems undeniable. This was a country far more interested in building wealth, for some, than in democracy. It's a gross understatement to say indigenous and enslaved black people were not included as members of the national family. America brutally victimized them. And yes, meanwhile, all women are denied full citizenship and most civil rights and will be for many more decades. But what about democracy among the people the United States was ostensibly built for? The men who were called white. Sure. My name is Carrie Lee Merritt. I'm a historian and writer who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, my first book was called Masterless Men, Poor Whites in Slavery in the Antebellum South. Carrie Lee Merritt's work focuses on a group that's usually overlooked in stories about America before the Civil War, poor white people. Enslaved black people made up about half the population in the Deep South cotton states. Merritt divides the free white population into three broad groups. About one-third of whites were in families that owned slaves. So these are, you know, very, very high-class, high-net-worth individuals. Then there's about a third of white people who are either yeoman farmers, people that owned their own land, and perhaps even owned a slave or two. 
or merchants and lawyers and kind of the burgeoning middle class. And then the final third, I argue, are these poor whites, these people that are trapped in cyclical poverty that are never able to get out. Um, the men have to compete with brutalized enslaved labor, and so they're constantly moving around trying to find work, and this creates fractured family lives um, where women are actually heading poor white households for much of the year. Carrie Lee is quick to say you can't compare the experience of poor Southern whites to that of enslaved black people. But she says the ruling class's decision to use slave labor left poor white men with no place in the Southern economy. It wasn't just that enslaved people did all the agricultural work, which, if not for slavery, would have been a main source of jobs for uneducated white men. The white elite relied on enslaved people for most other work, too, carpentry and blacksmithing, weaving and clothes washing, even building railroads. So poor whites are, are the outgroup out of whites, right? Because yeomen and the, middle, the middling classes actually have much more in common with slaveholders. They have um, all of their economic and political beliefs are pretty much in line with slaveholders, but poor whites are the outliers. They're the people that are, they're constantly causing trouble, whether it's through interacting with slaves or, or you know, again, just through their own poverty, um, getting drunk, getting wild and rowdy, not voting the way people want them to vote. That last possibility, that poor white men might vote their own interests and not those of the slaveholding plutocrats, actually didn't happen much, Merritt says. For one thing, you couldn't run for office in the antebellum South without the okay of the ruling slaveholding elites. They run the elections, they, pick, they handpick the politicians, who are all, you know, usually smaller slaveholders or people who are just getting into slavery, um, becoming slaveholders themselves. So if poor whites have dreams of voting for someone who will improve the plight of poor white men, well, it's rare that any such candidate is on the ballot. Besides, some states denied voting rights to poor white men through property requirements well into the 19th century. North Carolina was the last state to do away with its property requirement in 1856. Merritt says other barriers to voting included poll taxes, they were usually more than a day's wages for a poor worker, and residency requirements. A real problem if you're a struggling laborer who's often on the move. And so there are myriad ways that slaveholders were able to disenfranchise poor whites, but the ones that they didn't disenfranchise, they basically just gathered up on election day. They got them really, really drunk, you know, fed them barbecue, gave them meat, you know, a luxury, and, and took them to the polls. And they're literally voting in front of every powerful man, every slaveholder in the county. There's no secrecy in voting at that time. Everyone can see exactly who you're voting for. Your name's literally written down under the candidate. And so, of course, they're voting the ways that the slaveholders want them to vote. So Chenjerai, that is really not a functioning democracy, is it? I mean, even for white men, if you're excluding a whole class of people, at least in one major region of the country. Nah, it's not. And I think the message really from Carrie Lee Merritt's work is important because what it shows is that the people who had real power in this country weren't just leveraging racism and sexism. I mean, they were definitely leveraging that, let's be clear. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the project of minority rule went even further 
and disenfranchise people that you were like, oh, I thought these people were like part of the club, right? Poor white men. <laughs> but yeah. it turns out they didn't bring anything to the table that the ruling class wanted at that point. But when I think about what politicians were selling people, right, it was the idea that they were fighting for opportunities for the common man. And things, some things did get a little better for white folks. You know, you just think about people like Andrew Jackson and this whole idea of Jacksonian democracy. Jacksonian democracy, and we, we need to talk about that a little bit in this episode. Andrew Jackson, seventh president, the, he's the guy who defeated John Quincy Adams in 1828. He was president through 1836. And it's like there's still these people to celebrate Jackson. The idea is he was this great populist champion of the common man who expanded voting rights for white men and made America more democratic, right? But what you have to deal with is the fact he was a vicious racist, a slaveholder, was completely supportive of slavery and the domestic slave trade that Ed Baptist was talking about. And he spearheaded the violent removal of Native American people from their land. And he was actually, after the American Revolution, the single biggest contributor to the ethnic cleansing and genocide of indigenous people. Yeah, that pretty much sums him up. Um and yet, apparently it's also true that his appeals on behalf of the so-called common man, the common white man, had some impact. He railed against the new capitalist plutocrats, including bankers. And during his time as president, voting rights for white men were expanded in many states. I want to play one more clip from, from Ed Baptist, who we heard from a lot in this episode. Ed told me Jackson was an early version, if not the originator, of a certain type in American politics. This political actor who claims to be uh, for the little people, for the ordinary man, let's say, but really represents a kind of a white men's ability to use violence to get what they want. This particular uh, political archetype, you know, really resonates repeatedly throughout U.S. history. Um, and we see it for the first time in the 1830s. Yeah, the first time, but not the last time. You see guys like this all, you know, in future periods, right? You saw them in Reconstruction in the late 1800s, people like Ben Tillman shutting down the political right to black people. And, and in the 20th century with politicians like George Wallace defending segregation. Thinking about now, you almost don't even have to say it. You're listening to Ideas and The Land That Never Has Been Yet from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. You can hear Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I'm glad we're doing an episode on Reconstruction 
because it's really a crucial time if you want to understand democracy in the U.S., even if you want to understand where we're at right now. The Reconstruction Era was the period of American history following the Civil War. Where the South was brought back into the Union, slavery was abolished, and the Constitution was amended to guarantee voting rights to all men, regardless of race. It was really more radical and revolutionary than most people realize. We saw this dramatic expansion of democracy, at least temporarily. And to give a taste of how radical the period was, Chen Jirai, you taught for some years at a public university in South Carolina, a state which is, has long been known for, shall we say, issues around race and diversity uh, up to the present day. You're listening to John Biewen and Chen Jirai Kumanika of the podcast Seen on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Right. So South Carolina, like the rest of the United States, is struggling with diversity. Yeah, and my university, it was like this huge problem. People were trying to, oh, how can we solve diversity? How can we diversify the student population? So this is something I learned that like threw me for a loop when I learned it. There was a time when the flagship public university in South Carolina had a student body that was overwhelmingly black. And it wasn't after the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. It was in the 1870s, less than 10 years after the Civil War. In this episode, Biwin and Kumanika revisit American history to reveal the attempts, failures, and successes in creating a true American democracy. This is The Land That Never Has Been Yet. In 1829, the black American writer David Walker published his book, An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. The whites have always been an unjust, jealous, unmerciful, avaricious, and bloodthirsty set of beings. Walker's appeal was one of the most radical abolitionist statements in antebellum America. He condemned the people who called themselves white for their cruel commitment to enslaving black people and he called on enslaved people to revolt against their masters. Walker also suggested white people deserved punishment from on high. I declare, it does appear to me, as though some nations think God is asleep, or that he made the Africans for nothing else but to dig their mines and work their farms, or they cannot believe history, sacred or profane. I ask every man who has a heart and is blessed with the privilege of believing, is not God a God of justice to all his creatures? Other leading abolitionists of the 19th century, including Frederick Douglass and John Brown, voiced some version of this idea, that slavery violated God's law or natural law, and white Americans would someday pay for this great sin. It took the cataclysm of the Civil War to bring a white American president to a similar view. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but... Abraham Lincoln gave his second inaugural address on March 4, 1865, as he started his new term as president. It was a little more than a month before the Confederate General Robert E. Lee would surrender at Appomattox, and only six weeks before Lincoln's assassination. In this very short speech, roughly five minutes long, Lincoln declared that all knew slavery was the cause of the war. 
And with more than 600,000 people dead, he implied that white America was reaping what it sowed. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln is given that speech at a moment when history had finally happened to white Americans, um, had finally hit home. Historian Ed Baptist. Uh, and we could talk about you know, him before that point, um, whether or not he was really committed to emancipation at any point um, up till the second inaugural. Um, I think in the second inaugural, he's not only committed to emancipation, but he's assessing it and its implications and the implications of the history of slavery and exploitation in the U.S. with an honesty that few white Americans um, have achieved since then, because there is an implicit argument for reparations in that speech. Mm. Uh, and I don't know of any other U.S. president since then who has accepted that logic. Chen Jirai, you wanted to make sure that we didn't give Abraham Lincoln too much credit for these enlightened remarks in his second inaugural speech. <laughs> right. You know, just I'm just always the <laughs> hater, right? I mean, hater. Lincoln gives a speech condemning slavery, and I, I still, it's not enough, right? <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. It's, it is a good speech, and it means something to me that Lincoln finally came to see this, right? That white people in America had committed this tremendous crime by enslaving black people for centuries. But, you know, it's like Lincoln was racist for a lot of his life. And it took him a long time to come around, even to the point of just, you know, favoring emancipation. And I think that's what the David Walker quotes really make clear. Right. People have been saying this for decades, including people talking directly to Lincoln. So Lincoln learned and I like that he learned. But it's also a reminder to me that while white people are learning, black people are dying. Hmm. Yeah. And then when he finally comes out for emancipating enslaved people, what does he do, right? Like, why does he do that? It winds up being like a kind of a strategic thing that makes him do it. It's like a tactical war strategy. Yeah. And also his his idea was essentially we're going to free black people and then send black people out of the country to like Central America or something like that. Yeah. Colonization, as they called that kind of plan, which was fairly popular among uh, white folks for decades in the 19th century. And when Lincoln expressed that idea to some black people in about 1862, it did not go over well. <laughs> but in writing this inaugural speech just before his death, a few years later, he seems to have grasped in some real way that the United States owed black people a huge moral debt. And in mainstream political thinking in the U.S., this was a radical view up until that moment, and now the President of the United States was saying it. He had not been a radical. Right. I mean, Lincoln, up to that point, was the leader of a mainstream 19th century political party, and he wasn't in the most progressive wing of that party, right? He had to be dragged into it. 
He was basically kind of like a Joe Biden of that time, if you want to look <laughs> at it that way. <laughs> but the times and a whole bunch of blood had brought him to a point where he could make this statement. Here he is essentially agreeing with David Walker in declaring white Americans guilty with the implicit message that the country needs to change for real, right? Really needs to turn the page. Historians have called Reconstruction the second revolution or the second founding. Yeah, and I think that's appropriate because the people who are wielding power in the mid-1860s, some of them black, some of them white, really pushed the United States into new territories of democracy, far beyond what the original founders did. I mean, at least they tried to. Land, education, the right to vote and hold public office. For a time, it looked like these things would now become available to four million black people across the American South who were freshly freed from chattel slavery. This made the years after 1865 an extraordinary time. Hopes were high, but these gains were hard won and always under threat. After the defeat of the Confederacy, Lincoln's party, the Republicans, held firm control of Congress. The election of 1866 gave them a majority so big they could override vetoes by President Andrew Johnson. He was a Democrat from Tennessee and an unabashed white supremacist. He wanted the North to make up with the defeated South and move on. For a time, though, the Congress led a push to dramatically remake the country. Reconstruction is fundamentally a story about democracy. It's about who will have a role in American democracy going forward from the Civil War. Historian Eric Foner. He's widely considered the leading authority on Reconstruction. Will this be a biracial democracy where African Americans for the first time really are given a voice in who rules in their society, and in, in their states, or will they be put back into a position of subordination? Not slaves anymore, but certainly not uh, equal in any way. The Civil War didn't settle that fight. It made it possible to have it. At first, the Republican-controlled Congress tried to create a multiracial democracy. It passed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, abolishing slavery in 1865. Then over the next few years, two more amendments. The 14th granted citizenship to anyone born in the U.S. and guaranteed equal treatment under the law, regardless of race. The 15th declared voting rights could not be denied because of race. Eric Foner's newest book about the passage of those three amendments is titled The Second Founding, I use second founding because we talk about the founders, you know, from the American Revolutionary era. Well, my argument is this really remade the Constitution. It wasn't just a series of little changes. It created a fundamentally new uh, document. Uh, and if we want to, you know, as we should, uh, admire James Madison and Hamilton and the original founders, we should also equally admire John Bingham and Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner and those who rewrote the Constitution in order to try to bring this principle of equality into it. Those members of Congress were among the leaders of the radical Republicans, as they were called. Members of the party who, unlike Lincoln, were clear abolitionists before the Civil War. Their leader in the Senate was Charles Sumner, 
a Bostonian in his 50s and the Congress's most uncompromising defender of equal rights for black people. A decade before, in 1856, a South Carolina congressman had brutally beaten Sumner with a cane on the Senate floor during a bitter debate about whether to admit Kansas as a free or slave state. Now Sumner and his allies were in charge, and they pushed for what W.E.B. Du Bois would later call abolition democracy. Over two days in February 1866, Sumner gave a four-hour speech with Frederick Douglass seated in the crowded Senate gallery. Sumner was explicit in saying the country needed to go far beyond the first revolution. Our fathers solemnly announced the equal rights of all men and that government had no just foundation except in the consent of the governed. Looking at this declaration now, it is chiefly memorable for the promises it made. Mighty words, fit lesson for mankind. And now the moment has come when these vows must be fulfilled to the letter. With the radical Republicans temporarily in control, Congress put the former Confederate states under martial law in 1867. It required those states to hold constitutional conventions, with black people fairly represented and many former Confederate leaders banned from participation. Those new constitutions adopted the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery and granted voting rights to black men. The Congress also created the Freedmen's Bureau, which built thousands of schools and hospitals and helped freed people negotiate fair labor contracts. I mean, it's absolutely revolutionary. Historian Kadata Williams of Wayne State University. She talks about the roughly 2,000 black men elected to office during Reconstruction at the local, state, and federal levels, most strikingly in places like South Carolina, where black people were the majority in the 1860s. What you see for African Americans in South Carolina is when they are elected to state office, one of the biggest things they do is to make a move toward expanding democracy in their state. More people have access to government. More people have better representation by government. Government in places like South Carolina are do, is doing more. It's doing things that today we take for granted. And African Americans are behind this push. We'd like to see the uh, upstairs gallery, is that possible? Bobby Donaldson and I walk into the South Carolina State House, the domed Capitol building in Columbia. He's a professor of history here at the University of South Carolina. The state's constitutional convention in 1868, ordered and overseen by the federal government, produced a new state blueprint that gave all men the right to vote, regardless of race or property. The result, South Carolina's House of Representatives, seated in July 1868, looked like the state. It was majority black, 88 black members to 67 whites. And across is the Senate. Donaldson has led me to the House chamber. You can think about between 1868 and 77, uh, this space being occupied by African Americans, a cross-section really. You had people who were natives of South Carolina who were holding elective office. And then you had some people who were transplants or carpetbaggers or people who came here, some because of the Civil War and Union forces, some who came because of opportunities. And 
here is where they govern, and here is where they help to recreate the state of South Carolina. The new state constitution mandated free public education for everyone for the first time, including poor white people who had had no access to schooling, and it required that every public institution be open to everyone. The University of South Carolina was integrated. Most white students left when black students were admitted in 1873, so for the next four years the student body was 90% black. These dramatic changes were made by a majority black legislature in South Carolina of all places. And those decisions were made in this building, the State House, that was a virtual shrine to white supremacy at the time, and in some ways still is. Remember, the Confederate battle flag flew on the State House grounds until it was finally removed in 2015. And inside the State House? Um, there, for example, there's a, there's a statue of. Um John C. Calhoun. Calhoun, one of the nation's leading pro-slavery politicians during the first half of the 19th century, and a vice president under Andrew Jackson. Calhoun called slavery a positive good, and he wrote this, There never has yet existed a wealthy and civilized society in which one portion of the community did not, in point of fact, live on the labor of the other. So, Bobby Donaldson says, Think of those African-American lawmakers coming to work here in the 1860s and 70s. These people are governing in a space where they know there is, you know, there is, there is this very clear assumption that this will be a failure. And if these people don't sort of fail on their own, we'll engineer it so that there's a failure. The we who would engineer that failure was the state's white power structure. The white Southern backlash started right after the war and never let up. In 1865 and 66, most of the Southern state legislatures passed black codes. They banned black people from voting, denied them equal rights, and made them subject to vagrancy laws so they could be arrested practically at will. That was a major reason Congress saw the need to impose martial law and replace those white supremacist legislatures with Reconstruction governments. Military police suppressed the backlash somewhat, but never really stopped the violence by the newly founded Ku Klux Klan and similar groups, including direct political violence. So Benjamin Franklin Randolph uh, comes to South Carolina uh, as a chaplain for the Union Army, and he is elected a senator uh, during the Reconstruction period. He is uh, a very engaged and clear architect of the 1868 Constitution. Benjamin Franklin Randolph was a free black man, a graduate of Oberlin, who'd been a school principal in Buffalo, New York. When he volunteered to serve the Union Army, he was assigned as chaplain to a black infantry unit that deployed to South Carolina in 1864. When the war ended, Randolph decided to stay, and he became a leader of reconstruction efforts in the state. It is he who helps to push forward the, the policies about education, and it is he who is killed while traveling and campaigning uh, in a place near Abbeville, South Carolina. Bobby and I go to Randolph Cemetery. 
It's tucked along a frontage road next to the interstate in Columbia. It's named for Benjamin Franklin Randolph, and his tall obelisk is the largest marker in the cemetery. In October 1868, Randolph was traveling as a state senator and Republican Party leader, campaigning for other candidates, when he changed trains at Hodges Station, 70 miles west of the capital. As he was on the rear of a train, and I'm not sure if he was just greeting people actually speaking, is where he shot um, and targeted by an assassin. Now, one of the important points about that incident is that that was not the only assassination in that window of time. Uh, it was not uncommon. And many people knew that they were jeopardizing their lives. He had come under threat before. And so he understood that the dangers involved in that role uh, in, the 18, in 1868. In the first election in 1868, where African Americans have access to the right to vote, African American men have access to the right to vote, you see the beginnings of violence designed to stop them from voting um, and to stop them from serving in office. And that only increases in 1869, headed into the 1870 election. Historian Kadata Williams is author of the book, They Left Great Marks on Me which looked at African-American accounts of racial violence in the decades after emancipation. And for the 1870 election, you see shocking levels of violence. And part of what has happened is that you've got the emergence of these sort of white terror groups conducting paramilitary campaigns. And they are targeting voters, they are tar targeting elected officials, and their families. The Klan, the Knights of the White Camellia, the Red Shirts, in dozens of incidents across the South, white gangs show up to attack or intimidate black politicians and voters to keep them from the polls. But that's just the violence tied directly to electoral politics. There's a broader terror campaign aimed at reversing the Second American Revolution. There are ways in which black people were actually more vulnerable than they had been under slavery because they're no longer valuable property, right? Exactly. What you don't see under slavery is masters killing their slaves all willy-nilly. With emancipation, that changes. Williams has researched the many thousands of individual attacks against black people during Reconstruction by paramilitary groups, police, and just regular white citizens. African Americans call these attacks or these attackers night riders. They wage war against black people's freedom. And this isn't hyperbole. What they do is these heavily armed squads of white men surveil and stalk their African-American targets. They wait to catch them off guard when they're with their wives, when they're with their kids, when they're in bed, and therefore unsuspecting and more vulnerable. They invade African-Americans' homes in the dark of night. They hold families hostage for hours at a time, where they rape, torture, mutilate, and murder them. No member of a household that was attacked was spared the violence that occurred. There's no way to get an accurate count of these murders. But Kadata points to an estimate made in 1895 by the black statesman Robert Smalls of South Carolina. He said 53,000 black people were murdered in the South in the three decades after the Civil War. 
For a while, the U.S. government tried to counter this terror campaign. Ulysses Grant, the former Union general, was elected president in 1868 and served two terms. He was a Republican supporter of Reconstruction. He sent troops to several states to suppress Klan violence and protect black voters at the polls. But it wasn't enough, and the federal government's commitment didn't last. In 1873, the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana, an armed white mob killed up to 150 black people after a disputed election for governor. And in South Carolina, white men killed dozens of black people in several towns during the 1876 election campaign. That election, 1876, would be the last under full-fledged Reconstruction. Looking back, maybe what's remarkable is that Reconstruction happened at all, and that it lasted as long as it did. Here's Eric Foner again. The abolition of slavery comes about through a unusual alliance, you might say, between the most downtrodden people in the country, the slaves themselves, some of their allies in the North, which Du Bois calls the abolition democracy, the radical Republicans, and then Northern capital, the richest people in the country, who are also committed to the Republican Party, who do not want the country broken up. They, they weren't interested in the Civil War, but when the war broke out, they were absolutely adamant that uh, the, the North had to win, and they came to be convinced, as Lincoln did, that the only way to win this war was to attack slavery. And for a few years, northern elites wanted to make sure southern oligarchs didn't just re-enslave black people and go back to the status quo before the war. That would have made the bloody conflict pointless and would have returned the country to the perpetual economic and political power struggle between north and south. But by the mid-1870s, it was clear chattel slavery was over and the southern oligarchy had been stripped of much of its wealth and power. Foner says the rich men of the North and their congressional representatives had gotten what they wanted most. They gave up on their alliance with the radical Republicans and the newly freed black people in the South. By the 1870s, you get a serious economic depression, which begins in 1873 and lasts to 1878. Uh, you get many Northerners, particularly these capitalists maybe, uh, saying, okay, we've done enough now. The, you know, we've got to move on to other issues. The capital and labor, the relations between them and the North is now on the agenda. Blacks have gotten their rights. They're in the Constitution. They're voting. Let's move on to other questions. And so the, the coalition fragments, and the Republican Party becomes more and more the party of Northern industrialists. And eventually... Northern capitalists kind of come to, you know, we can do business with these southern, the southern elite, merchants, planters. In a way, they're like us, you know. In 1876, the presidential election is contested, and leaders of the two parties cut a backroom deal. The Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, gets the presidency, and in return for the Democrats ending their challenge to Hayes, he agrees to pull the last federal troops out of the South. That same year in South Carolina, the elections for governor and the state legislature are also contested. When the federal government withdraws its troops and refuses to help settle the state's election dispute, Republicans in Columbia know it's over. The Republican governor resigns and the white supremacist Democrats take control of the state 
in the spring of 1877. Historian Bobby Donaldson. Safcon's experiment was only made possible because you had a military force here providing protection and assistance to African Americans. And it is no irony then that when those military forces are are withdrawn in April of 1877 is where you see many people seeing the closing window, the drop of the curtain of Reconstruction. By the 1890s, the former Confederate states are rewriting their constitutions again, using tools like poll taxes and unfair literacy tests to disenfranchise black voters. The Supreme Court, for decades, consistently interprets the new constitutional amendments in ways that strip them of their intended purpose, to defend the voting rights and other civil rights of black people. By 1900, Jim Crow is in full force. So that's a photograph of a woman named Mary McLeod Bethune, who was born during Reconstruction. As we're walking through the South Carolina State House, Bobby Donaldson reminds me of something. So you know, this, this building um, is kind of a site of uh, birth of a nation. That flagrantly racist 1915 movie was set in South Carolina. It supposedly tells the story of Reconstruction and its righteous defeat by white supremacists the reactionary movement known as Redemption. The silent film slanders black Reconstruction lawmakers. In one scene, a black state representative puts his bare feet on his desk during a House debate, while another eats fried chicken. This was the lie Americans were told far into the 20th century, that Reconstruction failed because black people were not ready or able to handle political power responsibly. Only in recent decades have historians created a new consensus that sets the record straight. The great black scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, writing his epic book Black Reconstruction in the 1930s, summed up the story of Reconstruction this way. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again toward slavery. Democracy died, save in the hearts of black folk. You are listening to an abridged version of the documentary series, The Land That Never Has Been Yet. The series is from Seen on Radio, a podcast from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. You can hear the full series at seenonradio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio.org. It is produced by John Bewin with series collaborator Chenjerai Kumanika. It is edited by Loretta Williams. This episode was adapted for ideas by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nicola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.